This is Larry Weissin, and you're listening to Outdoor Adventures with Jason. Welcome to Outdoor Adventures with Jason. Each week, I bring the world of hunting, fishing, and conservation to you. From the great hunting and fishing opportunities found in the Americas to the dream safaris located on the dark continent beyond. I'll introduce you to those who are already out in the field living every outdoor enthusiast's dream, as well as outfitters and gear manufacturers that can make those dreams your reality. Killin' Sticks Arrows are for the serious hunter, a company that understands the needs of the outdoorsman and provides five different styles of carbon fiber arrows, ranging from hunting to tournament arrows. If you want premium carbon fiber arrows, go to Killin' Sticks, K-I-L-L-N-S-T-I-X.com to review their carbon arrows. For listeners of the Outdoor Adventures with Jason show, use promo code OUTDOORS to get 10% off your first order. Killin' Sticks where the blood trail begins. Welcome to this episode of Outdoor Adventures with Jason. Today I want to welcome Justin Ragazine on. Justin has completed the North American uh, Super Slam record put out by Ovis, and he did it as one of the youngest and fastest people to complete this uh, achievement. And Justin, welcome to the show today. Uh, thank you, Jason, for having me. And what really caught my attention on this is Dave, there's very few people that have ever done this record before, but you just released a book that's available through Amazon and Lulu.com for an ebook version of it, which is on your record to or your quest to complete this record. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about just the Super Slam and then how you got interested in it? Yeah, so the, the Super Slam of North America consists of su- successfully hunting 29 North American big game animals. They're broken down into categories of species of five different deer. There's five different caribou, three different moose, four of the sheep, four different bears, mountain lion, antelope, muskox, bison. I think that might be all 29. They do have, uh, there's six different caribou and you only need five of them. They substitute a walrus in there somewhere if you're short on uh, one of the species. It's basically a lifetime achievement award is what they consider it. And I've seen uh, many uh, hunters actually pass away uh, due to old, you know older age that you know have had that 28 but didn't get the the 29 due to the cost of the either the desert bighorn or some people just can't justify spending the money on the polar bear when you can't bring it back into the United States. For me, didn't know what the Super Slam was. Never intended on doing it at a uh, Ovis convention, the GSCO convention. Basically, the first year I, I started uh, doing the outfitted hunts. Second outfitted hunt I did was a doll sheep hunt. I met a guy on that hunt and he had finished it, his grand slam with uh, doll sheep. And we became you know, friends on the hunt, shared a lot of interest and had a great time. So he invited me to come out to the, the GSCO show when he got his grand slam award. And while I was there, they were having this conversation. This name kept going back and forth, kept hearing Pat Garrett, who has become a great friend of mine, one of the funniest guys there is. They kept saying he was the youngest guy to achieve the super slam. And he had you know, achieved it that year. And I asked, I said, well, you know, how old was and you know they they say well he's 35 years old so uh me being you know competitive uh, for some reason i'm competitive no matter what it comes down to i was about i was 32 years old at the time and i had had three of the animals already which was a doll sheep a whitetail and 
the black bear just sat there for a few minutes and started running the numbers and decided that for it to happen, I would have to take 26 animals over a 15-month period. I am self-employed. I, I have a construction company. So the biggest hamper for the, the hunter from what I have seen in completing the North American Super Slam is you either have the, the time and not the money or you have the money and not the time. And being self-employed and doing you know somewhat well in business I decided I had the money and I was going to make the time because I wanted to be the youngest. So I, I left the show and I, I got to doing some research and started booking the hunts. That was about the start of it for me. And not only did I learn what the North American Super Slam was, but at the exact time I learned it, I decided I was going to do it. Well, that's basically two animals a month that you needed to take. You must have built up some frequent flyer miles. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll tell you, I hit, I flew with United at the time and I hit their, their 1K uh, status quite quickly. I would think so. So you decide you're going to do this. You sit down and you start to plan out. Uh, were all of the remaining hunts, the 26 hunts you needed to do outfitted so that you could get them done in a certain time frame? Yes, I, I did the, the antelope was uh, uh, I did that kind of do it yourself. I have a cousin in Wyoming and the whitetail I had shot, you know, in my home state. Mo most of the animals, especially hunting in Alaska and Canada, you, you have to have an outfitter. So it's not something, you know, that somebody can do completely on their own. It's just, it's not feasible. You know, in Alaska, you can't hunt a grizzly bear. You can't hunt sheep on your own. So unless you're an Alaskan resident, so you have to have, you know, a, a guide. And that was a big thing. You know, there's a, I, I'm not a wealthy person by any means. There were things that I did on this trip to cut down, you know, on budgeting. And, you know, I, I slept on airport floors and buying all my materials on my credit card is how I got all the flights. The one thing I didn't want to do was to take a hunt because it was a cheap hunt, you know, to save money because I knew for me to do this in that amount of time, I had to go with the right guys to make sure this was going to happen because there was a lot of outfitters and, you know, not, nothing bad against any of them, but there, there's good ones, there's bad ones, just like in anything. The, the last thing I was looking for was a cheap hunt. I think that had, that was a key to my success was going with the right guys and finding, you know, other ways to save money throughout. You know, I took just about every animal I shot, I took home on the plane with me to save money from shipping and those things of those 26 animals polar bear and probably the desert bighorn sheep were probably two of the more difficult ones to set up quickly they were all fairly easy to set up because there's not a lot of people hunting polar bears so there were some tags left over the hardest one for me uh was sorry the caribou in quebec the reason was I had purchased in, I think it was in March at a Northeast Michigan SCI chapter show. Over the phone, I purchased an auction tag for that caribou. About two weeks before my hunt, I called to complete and get it all set up. I think it might have been a little, you know, more than two weeks. But I had found out that the government had cut back the tags due to the population. So what they had done is they had about 350 tags. They threw them into a bowl, so to speak, and drew out a certain amount of names and if you didn't get drawn you didn't get the tag and that was for the outfitter that i had picked i found that out with a, a couple weeks left in so i had to I hurry up i got on the phone i started i was actually in alaska at the time on a hunt i started googling outfitters in quebec and luckily i found a guy that had a tag 
and I got in there and, and got that one done. So that was probably the hardest one to get set up because they did cut back all the tags. Can't remember. Was that called the Labrador herd or? Uh, yes. Okay. I, I remember hearing and that left a lot of people with a bad taste about hunting in Quebec because of the way some of that stuff yeah. went down. Right. And they actually, this past year, they this was the last year, two, 2017 was the, the last year that they're to be hunted for a certain amount of time because they said the populations are down too low. And I spoke to hunters that were there this year and they said they, the migrations were amazing. So I'm not sure how long it will be shut down, but I didn't see the migration. You know, I just, I got lucky and, and had a couple pass through, you know, around our hunting area. And I, I took what I, I was able to get. Tell me, you know, a lot of this I'm sure is detailed in the book, but for the listeners who, as you said, not many people hunt polar bears, tell a little bit about what that was like. It was it was very cold. I went in February. It was probably the it was definitely the coldest hunt I've ever done. You know, the, people are always oh the polar bear is almost extinct, and and that's not true. The the numbers have more than quadrupled in the last thirty years. Uh, when I got there, I had asked the the local guide. You know, I said, is it true that you know the polar bears are are going you know towards extinction? And and he just laughed. And honestly, this is what he said. He goes, you know, you stupid Americans don't listen to us. We live here. You're listening to the wrong people asking, you know, American scientists about this. He said there are more polar bears now than when I was a kid. You know, it's just I, I looked at the figures recently and it said 30 years ago there was about 7,000 and now there's estimated to be about 30,000. So the numbers are there and how they issue the tags, what people don't understand, they say, how could you shoot it? It's You're shooting an animal that, that's almost in, in, in extinct. What they've done, and I went to Pond Inlet just to save some money. Pond Inlet is a place where you can legally hunt polar bears it's not allowed to be exported anywhere outside of canada for that reason it was you know about ten thousand dollars cheaper so i went there the hunt we saw you know a couple i shot mine on the fourth day there was some issues on the hunt it had nothing to do with the outfitter i booked it through canada north they're amazing outfitters and these guys they're local inuit people and it's a different culture there what i was saying is the government issues 30 polar bear tags to that village based on the population it was 20 tags for male bears and 10 tags for female bears so no matter what around pond inlet 30 bears are being shot whether it's the locals hunters doesn't matter nobody could stop it 30 bears are going to be hunted so what the locals do is they hunt so many for themselves and then they sell so many tags so they have income i mean they get to keep the meat no matter what so because we're not going to bring it home the thing that people don't understand the uneducated people is that whether it's me going up there to hunt or a local you know that bear is going to get shot no matter what at least 30 of them and that's all based on the the number that that the scientist or the population control does as they fly over and count the bears yeah that's what people forget is that we're not the only protectors of wildlife out there and every country's got their own wildlife management areas for the most part and they know better what's on the boots on the ground than a a keyboard warrior sitting in some part of the united states that just says oh i think polar bears are extinct so justin shouldn't have hunted right no they're they're not even close but i will say that once i had harvested my bear you know they said oh you've got to try it and i'm not i i love meat i eat you know tons of game but there's certain animals that i choose not to eat i don't eat you know any of the cats and i'm not a big fan of the bears because they tend to be you know a greasy kind of meat these guys had took some of the polar bear meat and some seal meat and they threw it in a pot and boiled it just so i didn't offend them i tried it and it was the best meat I've eaten meat all over the world on all these hunts. It was the best meat I've ever eaten. 
Really? I was surprised. I was so surprised. Did you try the seal as well? No. <laughs> backed off on that no, one. I, huh? I, yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, I didn't harvest the seal, so I had no issues with trying to eat it or not. <laughs> as you did this, now where did you hunt muskox at? I hunted. That was another hunt I also booked through Canada North, and I did that in Cambridge Bay. Okay, so that was also done up in the Canadian areas. I guess it couldn't be done in yeah. Greenland to be considered part of the North American Slam. Uh, no, you can. I believe because there's still part, you know, Greenland's not that far off of Pond Inlet where I hunted the polar bear. Actually, the, the next landmass above Pond Inlet is Greenland. So oh, I right. think they would consider it. The reason I chose to hunt it there was I comboed it with the Arctic Island caribou. Okay. Also done in winter or was that done in a, a spring or summer? I did it in October and it was the second coldest hunt I've ever been on. Okay. Short of the polar bear. So I couldn't imagine doing it, you know, right now that if you book it a little later, I mean, it's much colder, but what happens is the water is all frozen. So you can go on to other land masses and they say that there are bigger muskox in those areas, but I would, me personally, I would rather have shot the one I shot than wait until it was colder because I did it with a bow. Oh, which is very challenging. Yeah, you know, the muskox, and you'll see it in pictures when they're all huddled up together. That's exactly what they did. Once we found them and located them, you know, as we got closer, there was maybe 12 to 15 of them. They, they huddled all up into a big group like that. And it was just waiting until the, the biggest male in there, you know, presented a shot. And it, it took a little while. So what I did is I stayed all bundled up. And as they started to move apart a little bit, I, I took off my big jacket and, you know, so it wouldn't affect, you know, the, the flight of the air. And, and that's when I, I decided to take the shot. Were you able to try the meat off of the muskox? Yes, we ate it in camp. I'm assuming it tasted fine like any other big game animal. Right. It's almost, you know, I don't think they classify it as a bovine. I believe they do. So it has that, it's kind of, it doesn't taste like beef. And the way they cooked it, they boiled it in a pot with some vegetables. So uh, I think when you boil a meat, it, it kind of takes some of the flavor out of when you just cook it in a pan. But it was good. We hadn't, you know, there was nobody that had any complaints about it. Outline a little bit for everybody what they'll find when they, they start to book, if you don't mind. So basically what I did is, and I had, to be honest with you, I had no, I'm not a writer. I had no desire to write a book, never even thought about it. And one uh, guy on Facebook, every time I'd go on a hunt, he kept asking, are you, you going to write a book? You should write a book. And when I got about three quarters of the way through, I said, you know what? I, I, I might as well. Why not? So I just started, I didn't really start writing it until I was just about done. I just started from the very first hunt, kind of journaled it all the way through, even though I didn't have a journal written for me it was effortless you know to go all the way back to the very first hunt and write it down i mean it was just reliving it as i wrote it so you know for me i could tell you i've shot over 150 species of animals and i could tell you you know i could rewrite every single one of them it's just it sticks with me because it's my true passion so i i, I never forget any of it oh. so you know that's it's chapter one through 29 of all 29 animals and in the back i've got a chapter on you know with some hunting tips for anybody who's interested in not necessarily hunting all 29 but just hunting any of them there's a, a few things i learned along the way and I, I wanted to put that in there and you know if i could help you know one person out you know from making a mistake it, it's worth it for 
for me. Oh, yeah. And for the listeners, if you hit the show notes up, you'll find a link to both ordering the hardcover version off of Amazon or the ebook version of it off of uh, lulu.com. So both of those will be right there and you can go out and order Justin's uh, book to go through it. I also have links to his both his Facebook page and Instagram page where you'll just see some amazing pictures of his past animals and trophies that he's taken at this point justin i wanted to transition a little bit from the north american animals and there's some i'd like to come back to tell the listeners a little bit about other areas that you've hunted because it's not just focused on north america for you i had no desire ever to hunt anywhere other than ohio and out west and never thought i would for that matter i booked a hunt because other than uh, starting the super slam i only hunted in ohio wyoming once for mule deer and then every other year in my early 20s i would go uh, with my family out to colorado and we'd do a do-it-yourself elk hunt with horses and tents and once i had booked my first outfitted hunt for black bear the people I hunted with up there had a, a friend from New Zealand that did all the New Zealand and shamwam, tar, and fallow deer and whatnot. So I decided to give that a shot back in 2012. And I went over and had an amazing time with him and shot a whole bunch of stuff. And what people don't realize is during the two years that I was hunting North America, actually, it was about 15 months that I did the, the 26 animals. I also hunted New Zealand. I hunted in South Africa. I hunted in Mozambique. I hunted in Tajikistan, Pakistan, and I think Australia. So uh, there was no grass growing under my feet. But once that's just me being competitive. Once I got into that international hunting, it just opened these, this door to these amazing animals and amazing places. What I had decided was I wanted to, to hunt every country that I could for every, you know, different animal and i've been to i believe 20 or 21 countries and i've taken just over 100 150 species of animals what had happened everybody kept asking me it was almost like are you going to write a book are you going to write a book everybody asked me you know where i was going to put all these animals because what people you know don't know is that i life-sized everything every inter- international animal that i've i've hunted i've life-sized it oh, wow. and now i'm looking back through the the north american ones that i didn't shoot a trophy i'm going to go back and try to hunt a trophy animal to do a life-size so basically what I came up with, because I live in a very small house, like I said, I'm not a a wealthy person. I spent all my money on hunting. I had nowhere to put all these animals. So several years ago, I come up with an idea to do a indoor archery range as a business with a wildlife museum on the inside of it. You know, a lot of these big international hunters have all these trophies in their house. Other than a few close friends, they they sit there and look at it, you know, themselves. I didn't want to do that, especially life-sizing these animals. There's some of these animals have, you, you look at the face, you look at the horns, and that's trophy but you get into some of these other especially in africa and you see the the stripes and the spots and just the, like the common water buck has a, a ring on its rump mm-hmm. that looks almost like a target you know you don't see that on these shoulder mounts and i just i said ah oh, i gotta life size that i you know on my first safari in africa i just hunted in south africa i took i think 18 different species and you know about halfway through the safari they just stopped asking if i was gonna life size it and just <laughs> assumed that i was going to so uh i, I wanted to do something that could allow everybody to enjoy it and i'm in the process now of hopefully realizing that that goal and that dream through an investor uh, i've got a, a friend helping me and we're just about there so the international 
hunting isn't for everybody. A lot of people question the safety. And for me, I, I believe I went to Kyrgyzstan in October and everybody, oh, why would you go there? It's so dangerous. And while I was there, the shooting in Las Vegas happened. It, it doesn't matter where you, I mean, the people I meet in these countries are absolutely amazing. Everybody in the hunting industry tends to be uh, a genuinely good person. And it's not, you know, even traveling to Pakistan, that might be the most dangerous country in question of safety. I've never ran into anything that would even put my life in jeopardy. They're such good people and they were so happy to have me there. The people that I would be concerned about for my safety are also the people that the those same people that helped me have concerns about. It's just not me being an American that puts me in danger. It's anybody that doesn't believe in what a terrorist believes, you know, their lives are in danger. And that is for everybody that I hunted with. I mean, it, it's just the way it is. And I will not sit at home and hope I'm going to be safe. I, there's two, it's a big world. And that really is what put me into the international hunting is such a big world. There's so many animals out there and I wanted to be a part of all of it. So I just started going on certain hunts and, you know, there's a lot of hunts. And I'm getting to the point now where a lot of the animals that I need are in that upper price range. And it's just hard for me to get there right now. I I've taken some amazing animals. I've been to some amazing places. And I've met the most amazing people out there on these hunts. Yeah, I completely agree. I had the opportunity to hunt international one time so far. And I spent uh, nine days in Zimbabwe. It was an absolute amazing experience. Never did I stop and think, oh, I feel like I'm in danger. The people were gracious. <laughs> Uh, the hunting was amazing. As you mentioned, I took a common water buck, and I have no idea what I'm going to do with it, but I have a tanned water buck rear-end hide here at the house that is one. I'll do something with it because the, the stripe around it was such a cool thing. I'm like, I hate to just waste that. It, it's just too neat. So I, it'll get turned into something one day. I don't know what, but uh, right. yeah. that was the same thing as I, I brought back the animals, and I hope to one day return and get things like, as you mentioned, a Niala, the markings on a Niala are just amazing. Absolutely. I just uh, returned myself from Zimbabwe after Thanksgiving. I went over with Cliff Walker Safaris for a lion. And after it was my fourth trip. I've, I've got 46 days into it. And I was very fortunate on the, the first evening to, to finally connect on a, a mature male lion. And uh, what a relief that was. It, was. it was almost, I'm a Leo. And everybody kept asking me, how could you hunt a lion? That, that's your sign. And I'm like, I'm a hunter. You know, I don't get into that, <laughs> that kind of crazy stuff. And, I, and it was almost like that was my nemesis. Everybody had the, as far as the big cat the line was the easy one the leopard was the hard one and it was almost reversed for me i've been on four lion hunts it's it took me my fourth trip to get one i've been on two leopard hunts i've sat in the blind for a total of three days that totaled maybe five hours and i've shot two you know mature leopards so it, it was kind of reversed and on my second leopard he said to me he goes oh but you didn't get a lion but you're look how lucky you are to get another leopard <laughs> you don't understand this lion is such a big deal to me I, i'm not concerned about getting another leopard but it finally all came together on this last trip now what type of gun did you use to take the lion i used a, a 375 that they had in camp and i chose to do that only because in that part of zimbabwe hunting with a bow is not permitted i really wanted to do a line with a bow you know just for a self 
accomplishment from you know my own self I, I wanted to do it with a bow and he said just before the trip oh i'm sorry you're not allowed you know to me hunting in africa 375 is a 375 not a long range gun you're not shooting far with it so i decided to save the, myself a, a hassle this trip and travel without a gun and i went there with a backpack and a carry-on bag with a camera in it it was the smoothest travel i've ever done <laughs> however a lot of the hunting i do is mountain hunting so i do take my own gun because uh, you know sometimes you've got to reach out there at four and five hundred yards and i don't feel comfortable doing that with somebody else's gun no you want what you're used to right now what part of zimbabwe were you in to take that lion i hunted in the savi valley conservancy okay and just just before i went there was uh some uh, i wouldn't call it you know a war but they had some protests and some violence going on in the capital and fortunately for me i flew into another city that was outside of that capital i mean there was we drove for 5 hours from the airport to the hunting concession other than some locals and you know a few goats and donkeys we didn't see anything at all so it is safe i mean no outfitter is going to allow a hunter to come to their country and put their life in danger it's just it's not something that any of these outfitters do and i've had hunts where i actually canceled a hunt because the outfitter said listen at this time this region i don't think it's safe you know they it's not all about the money they don't care you know about they're not going to take your money and then put your life in danger that, that's just not the kind of people we're dealing with yeah not only that it's it's bad business and it's bad it's bad for everybody involved right and you know as well as i do that i mean this is not a big industry the hunting industry is probably one of the smallest industries in sport you know word travels fast you know it, it's amazing when one bad you know hunt happens everybody hears about it you know there's so many forums today and you know when you go to these shows it, it's just not these guys know that and the ones that do conduct bad hunts they don't last long at all no. And it, as you said, it's small. And as a hunter, I can certainly accept the idea that, well, we had a rough run with finding the game. The animals aren't controlled that way. So there's only so much that the outfitter can be responsible for. But you also know that if you arrive in camp and it's shoddy or these other things go down, you know that this was probably not good to begin with. Correct. So tell us, what did you hunt in Pakistan? So I've been to Pakistan twice. I've hunted the, on the first trip, I hunted a Blanford Uriel and a Sind Ibex. And then on my second trip, I went back with uh, Peter Donish from Indus Safaris. And he is, anybody that had any concerns about hunting in Pakistan, Peter Donish is absolutely hands down the best guy. He's in the government. He's well-connected. Uh, he's with you on the hunt, which to me is the most important thing. Uh, so when I went back on my second trip and hunted with him, we hunted the Punjab Uriel, Himalayan Ibex. I took a Chinkara gazelle, a hog deer, uh, Asian wildcat, an Indian wild boar. Wow. And so all I have left in Pakistan is a, a blue sheep. And some of the indigenous animals, such as the Nilgai, just found in Texas, mm -hmm. they've got a black buck, an axis deer, and then uh, a Kenyan gazelle also. I don't know if that's the only place they're indigenous, but I know for sure that those animals are indigenous. And what I've started recently is when I'm going on these hunts, due to, you know, hopefully uh, opening this museum, I've started to take a lot of the smaller animals that normally people wouldn't hunt, such as when I was in Zimbabwe. We went out in the evenings and I shot a white-tailed mongoose, uh, a spring hare. I took an Egyptian goose and those things, it made it so much fun to go out and, and do that. You know, when you have the, you're on a, a hunt, like a lion hunt and you've got that dress, oh, am I going to get the lion or not? Because you pay for it 
whether you get one or not. To go out and, and add some fun taking these smaller animals has just added a whole new dimension to hunting for me. Oh, yeah, I bet. I was able to take a clip springer, which was a small antelope, and it was just a matter of luck that we happened to find that particular clip springer. In many ways, they're harder to hunt than the bigger animals. They move faster. They blend in quicker. Right. They're there. And by the time you, at least by the time I got a scope on that clip springer, he had already moved. It's not like putting a scope on an eland, you know, that right. <laughs> they kind of don't blend in as well. So, yeah, I've, I think those small antelope, are very challenged the smaller animals and they're often overlooked yeah definitely you know I, i've gotten into the dikers a lot recently and man they're just it's a small animal but they're so beautiful i've taken i was very fortunate to take a zebra diker and a lot of people you know go several times and most people don't even get one so to to get one of those was a big deal for me and i've got a, a hunt uh this year i'm going to go on where i've got a chance at four other species and i think i've taken you know 10 or 11 of them so far and you know they're just such beautiful little creatures now that means you'll have to start to eventually head up into the ghana and some of those jungle areas to get the dikers up in that area Right. This this hunt will be uh, in Gabon. Okay. So it's it's getting in there. And I've, I've done Liberia where I did take the zebra diker and uh, I took a bay diker and a maxwell diker also. Now, what about the largest eland? Is that on your map or have you already done it? I leave four days after Safari Club. Oh, all right. So yes, it's on your radar. It's on my radar. Uh, I've taken all the other ones. I've taken uh, a Cape you know, uh, Elan down in South Africa. I've taken the Livingston Elan. I've taken an East African Elan. And I have, I've life-sized the uh, Livingston and the East African. I will go back. I, I did say I, I've life-sized all my international animals, but the, the Cape Elan, I didn't. And I regret it. So I'm going to do that one again. On, on this uh, upcoming trip, which will be my next hunt in Cameroon, will be for the, the Lord Derby Elan, a Sing Sing Waterbuck, the Western Cobb, Red Diker, and a Western Bush Diker. I'm also, due to the museum, I'm getting into a some of the monkeys, which in Gabon is going to be an amazing trip. But in Cameroon, they've got the, the Puttis monkey, and then I'm going to try for the olive baboon also. How long will you be gone for? I believe it's a 14-day hunt. I think one of the main areas for the Lord Derby, is it not? You've got the two hunts are either in Can Northern Cameroon or in Central African Republic, and it's just not advised to go to Central African Republic. It's just too dangerous. Quality of animals in the CAR, the quality is a lot better. You get those 50, you know, inch plus bulls. But uh, I tell, you know, all my guides on my hunts, whether it's a mountain hunt in a, a, you know, some steep terrain or, you know, a hunt that would be in for the Lord Derby Elan, my life, there's no animal out there that is worth putting, you know, my life on the line for. So if I've got to settle for a, a slightly smaller animal and go to a safer place, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. I mean, that keeps your hunting going forward. Um, you know, Correct. so we've got all these amazing animals, where is this museum going to be located at? So it, it'll be in my hometown of Youngstown, Ohio. It's kind of a low-cost living there, and there's not a lot going on. But the, and So people question, why would you put it there? The key is the location, because it is in the middle of everything. You know, within a 60-mile radius, there's over 6 million people, and it's towns like Cleveland and Pittsburgh and Akron, Canton, you know, all of Western PA. It, it, it's right in the center of everybody. So rather than putting it in a, a big city like Cleveland, you know, you're missing out on all the Western Pennsylvania. So, 
you know, to have something like that, you know, people will drive an hour, you know, it's, that's not an issue for people to, to see. So the location is absolutely perfect. The highway intersections all meet right where this is going to go. It's easy to get to when it is, I'm hoping, you know, in the next five, 2020, it'll be up and going. I've got to build the building because there's just nothing out there. Most commercial buildings are a 15 and a half foot ceiling height. And this one's going to be 30 to incorporate the mountains for the sheep and stuff like that. So it's going to take a little bit longer, but in the end, it's going to be worth it. And this will also include indoor archery? Yes. Like I said, I'm not a wealthy person. So I had to focus on having a business to make it possible. So it'll include an indoor archery range, which will have, you know, the paper targets during the week. And then on the weekends, we're going to open it for a 3D course from a range of animals. I've doing my research, I've found about 150 different 3D targets so far. So we'll interchange about 25 out a week. You, you know, that way you, you won't see the same target for about a five-week period. And there's going to be a pro shop and there's going to be seminar rooms and a warming kitchen. It's going to be a complete, everything archery is going to be there. Oh, wild. That'll be quite the destination to come from all that Midwest area. Right. You know, they just opened that museum in Missouri that Johnny Morris from Bass Pro Shops opened. It's gigantic. The difference will be, these are all my animals. This is something I've done. So even though that is the largest place, this will be a destination in itself. It'll be all, you know, other than uh, obviously needing an investor because, you know, it's out of my price pocket to do it. It'll be, you know, all basically what I've done and accomplished inside that place. Where I'm at in Ohio, I'm right on the border of Pennsylvania, and that's why I chose archery. Between the two states, they sell about a half a million archery tags a year. So I'm right in the heart of bow hunting because of our season. Most people have a a two-week archery season. Our archery season opens at the end of September and closes the 1st of February. You know, if you enjoy hunting, the common thing is just to get a bow because you can can hunt so long. Yeah, Ohio is uh, synonymous with also all the, the crossbow manufacturers for the most part. Right. Being yeah. that the bulk of them are either there or started there before they may have moved. So it's a strong influence. So tell right. the listeners, what kind of equipment when it comes to bows do you tend to choose? What What do you look for? Um, you know, at the, the moment I shoot the Hoyt bow, it's just everything, you know, when it comes to a finding a bow it's really a personal preference uh you know everybody you know you got the guys that like matthews the guy that like hoy guys that like Bowtech. it's just really you know what your preference is i mean everybody i think every manufacturer makes a bow that everybody would enjoy but it's just you know sometimes you know it's oh well i love michael waddell i love watching his shows he shoots this bow so that's what i want to use yeah it it really you know it's everybody's you know personal preference i I shoot uh, the Hoyt, I, I like it. it. It just fits in my hand well. It shoots well. So that's what I choose. But we'll offer every, you know, every bow that manufacturer that we're allowed to sell, we will have there. It's not, you know, going to be, well, we, we only specialize in this bow. So if you want, if we have X and you want Y, you have to go here and buy it. I don't want that to happen. So I want everybody to focus and buy their product and shoot their product at our place. Now, shifting back to your super slam here from North America, because there's animals in there that people think and dream about hunting and just, as you said, they might have the time, but not the resources or or vice versa. When you did, where did you take like your moose? Where can people read about hunt when they read your book about your moose hunt? 
So it, it just depends which species of moose, you know, as far as we'll start, there's three different moose that you need. There are four different moose that you could hunt. So one is a Shiris moose. I took mine with a bow. Now, my Shiris moose is not recognized by Pope and Young because I shot it in Canada. And there's a they draw a line for the Shiris moose that's just north of Calgary, Alberta. And everything below that is a Shiris moose. So I didn't have the time or the money. Well, I should say I didn't have the time to draw a Shiris moose tag in the state. And I didn't have the money to buy a governor's tag. So I went to Alberta where you can buy, you know, a tag and hunt with an outfitter. And it's 100% a Shiris moose. I mean, everything about it is Shiris moose. So the second moose is Canadian moose. I shot mine in British Columbia and I comboed mine on the mountain goat hunt. You have, that is the Western Canadian moose, or you can go to Newfoundland and shoot an Eastern Canadian moose. Then you've got the Alaska Yukon moose. I chose to do mine in the Yukon and I combined that with a, a mountain caribou. It's just a, a preference of, you know, what outfit did you want to go with? You know, they've got giant moose in Alaska. They've got giant moose in the Yukon. I had shot my caribou in Alaska already. So I, my pick was obviously to go to the Yukon so I can get that mountain caribou at the same time. Both done with a rifle? Did my my Yukon moose and my Canadian moose with a rifle, and then I did the Shiris moose with the bow. I guess there, there's opportunities to hunt the Yukon and Alaskan moose with a bow. That has to be... I had a bow with me, correct. I did have my bow. You know, it would have been ideal for me to shoot all 29 with a bow. However, to do it in two years is absolutely impossible. It's, right. just, it's not even... Anybody that would think they could do that is just, you know, out of their mind. So on most of my hunts, I took a bow, a muzzleloader, and a rifle. I wanted to do it with a bow, but to do it in that time frame, I just didn't have the time i probably could have i shot my moose on the first day i I probably could have done it with with a bow but having that it was the most stressful thing i've done i mean having to to get that animal and not you know being able to leave without it you know there were some hunts where i just had to set the bow aside and and just do it with a rifle you know a lot of people were asking me well you know you're doing all this at such a young age what are you going to do afterwards i'm gonna go back and do it with a bow (laughs) yeah now you've got the time you know to to focus with just a bow right well, that was quite an accomplishment to do so much in such a short amount of time. And you've joined an extremely elite group. I, I think there's less than 160 people registered with the Super Slam of North America. So you're in very s- a small group. There, They have to be a fun get together when you folks and share stories. Congratulations. Yeah, the, the GS, uh, thank you. The, the GSCO uh, convention is not the biggest convention, but, you know, a lot of these guys are there and, you know, it is fun to see down and, and kind of you know talk about what you shot where you shot it and i didn't do this to say hey look at me you know it was just a personal thing you know i wanted to be the youngest person like i said being competitive it was the most competitive thing i've ever done the most challenging thing you know and a lot of people say oh well uh, it's not about the awards and you're right it's not it's about love of the sport hunting is my true passion i've been hunting my entire life but for somebody that is competitive it's just an added bonus sure you know it's more of a self-accomplishment for me you know, I set out to do a goal and I did it. And, you know, if they offer an award, I'm going to go up on stage and collect, you know, and I do that for the benefit of that convention. You know, that's just supporting GSCO. You know, those guys that want to sit back and, oh, you know, I'm not in it for the award. You know, you don't have to be, but go to the convention, turn in, you know, your, your sheets and, and be recognized for it. Because not only are you doing it for the convention, you're doing it for the justice of that animal. You know, and, and that's how it is for me. And GSCO is a great organization. I'm glad to be a part of it. If I didn't record all those animals and I didn't collect that award, it would be taking away from GSCO. That's why they're there. They are there to document those animals for the hunter and issue 
those awards, you know, and I encourage everybody, if you're going, you know, to hunt all 29 animals, clearly you should document it and be recognized for it. It's a, it's a great accomplishment. I didn't, I felt that when I got my award, you know, I didn't want those hunters that have spent 30, 40, 50 years trying to accomplish this. I didn't want it to be like, oh, hey, look at me. I did it in two years. I just wanted to be the youngest person. So I had to do it in two years. If the youngest person would have been 38, I wouldn't have done it in two years. That would have taken my time. Like I said, the ultimate goal was to be the youngest super slammer. So in order to do that, I had to crunch it in, in, you know, 27 months and get it done. And I'm sure, you know, there are people out there that will be, you know, younger down the road. I mean, I might probably be the youngest to do it, kind of done it on their own. You know, nobody helped me through this. I have a business that I started on my own. I paid for everything on my own. The one thing I know that will stand, and they said it during the convention, it, it made me feel good that nobody will ever do it in that time frame. You know, it sits well with me to know that I went out and accomplished that. Nobody handed that to me. You know, and that, that's a, a big deal for me that, that I was able to, to not only be a super slammer, but to, to just go out and, and hammer it and be successful at, at all the hunts. And I did have to do two hunts over again. I had to do the mountain goat and the mountain lion over again. The mountain lion, I just didn't see one in the mountain goat. I had an issue with my gun. However, that happened in the first year of trying. So I was able to rebook it for the next year. Why it was so stressful was in that second year, if there was any animal that I didn't get, it was going to keep me from, you know, reaching my goal. I think I just made a post about that, you know, that big horn sheep hunt that I did with the bow. I mean, I was thinking I was going to be in there, you know, for, you know, five days. It was, it's the only place in North America you could hunt bighorn sheep during the rut. Therefore, you have to do it with a bow. I mean, I, I missed three times. I, I'm not ashamed to say it. You know, it was, they were long shots. They were uphill, straight downhill. I hit a branch on one of the shots. I actually had my desert bighorn sheep was the following hunt and I had to push the hunt back. I called the outfitter and told him I was going to be late because I, I couldn't leave Alberta, you know, and so it, it would turned out to be a you know, it was going to be a five day hunt turn. I shot him on day 15 and oh, wow. I shot him the day I was right. I shot him the day I was supposed to arrive in Mexico. And so I went home. I took all my cold gear out. I packed all my warm gear. I got in the truck. I went to the airport and I flew to Mexico. And I, that's where I, I hunted my desert bighorn sheep. That was the most challenging hunt. It, one of the things that was weighing on me was my last animal. The number 29 animal was a sick uh, deer up in Alaska. And I kept saying to myself, I can't believe I, I did that. I, I've got this great accomplishment. I'm using the Sitka deer as my last animal. I should have made it something bigger. I almost didn't get one. That hunt, the time I went, we had bad weather and I landed and the outfitter said, you know what? I don't want to discourage you, but you know, the weather is not cooperating. It's not great weather for this hunt. And I didn't take a giant deer, but I took the only one I saw. So I was very fortunate. Yeah, sometimes that's the way the cards are dealt, but you know, that's why it's hunting. And just the fact right. that you accomplished it is um, amazing. The animals that the you're going to be sharing those with people there are people all around the united states that will never know what a blue sheep is when you're lucky enough to take one of those or to be able to see a life-size representation of it when they head to your place maybe 100 or 200 miles from their home when they know they'll never travel to go to see that in the wild what a right. what an opportunity for school kids to come in and actually appreciate 
the wildlife and, and ways to help be conservationists for it, not preservationists for it, be actual conservationists of it, allow the animal populations to grow through, you know, wise use. So it's really a great thing. And, and not only that, but expose them to archery, expose them to the Correct. joys of yeah. shooting a bow. The, the more I get, clo- the closer I get to this, the educational part of it is becoming bigger than I ever imagined. You know, the way we're going to have this set up is just going to be amazing for kids. Today with the Archery in the Schools program, you know, what we plan to offer is a complete field trip where they get a, you know, it's a tour of the museum, they get an archery lesson, you know, just 100% educational for these kids. And I think it'll, the positive impact it'll have, I'm not expecting every child to go out and want to get a bow or want to be a hunter. I want them to be educated because that is the problem. I, I get these anti-hunters and to listen to the words that come out of their mouth, it screams uneducated. And when you sit down and have a five minute conversation with them, they say, oh, I didn't know that. I, right. So they're just, they're, they're talking, they're, they're making an argument, they're insulting people and they have no idea what they're even talking about. So it will be just a goal of mine is to make sure that I can educate as many children as possible so they don't go out and view this negativity about the outdoors and hunting that's not true which is so needed i can go onto facebook and post the picture of the giraffe that i took in zimbabwe and all the love messages from the antis come rolling in at that point right what you mentioned with the polar bear is the same with the giraffe in that particular part of zimbabwe on that ranch 40 to 50 of them were going to die that year whether i shot it or not because of overpopulation unlike you know say oh wow there's too many whitetail in southern ohio let's gather some up and move them to western ohio there is no money to do that with the giraffe so well there are right. some declining populations of them you can't just say oh i'll just stick these 50 giraffe in a truck and move them to uh kenya or wherever it, it exactly. doesn't happen yeah and i tell you i shot mine for a completely different reason than you shot yours and i shot mine i had no desire to shoot a giraffe you know my first safari to south africa it wasn't even in the back of my mind and we were driving around through the the concession you know probably the most amazing place in south africa a 6008 concession that is just absolutely a dream to hunt and we you know you get this whiff of this air that was just horrific and i, I asked i said what is that and they said well we're gonna drive you know and we drove up and you know it was a, a dead giraffe and then the next day we're driving and you know it hits you again well what is that and you know we drive a little further and there's another dead giraffe so i asked him well, you know why are these giraffes dying and he said it's competition you know giraffe bulls if you have never seen a giraffe bull fight i highly recommend you google it and youtube watch a youtube video and watch these animals fight so what they told me was that these young bulls you know would get into these fights with an older bull and the older once a bull was so old you know it just could not handle the impact and the severity of these fights so i said i tell you what so this place has a ton of giraffe let's get up on a high point and let's just spend a, a morning glassing and pick out a, a really old mature bull and and i'll take one you know because you have a quota somebody's going to come in and take it it it, it might as well be me so that's what we did and i life-sized him you know and he'll be in the museum someday you know that you have to control a population whether it's a a white-tailed deer or a giraffe they all need to be controlled you know it's it's the wild you know and, and without that 
you know, they're going to run out of food. There's going to be disease that's going to be spread. And it's imperative that all species of animals have to be controlled. And some of the greatest hunt stories of hunting and controlling animals and getting them back to where they're at today is probably the markhor in Pakistan. Mm. I mean, these animals were hunted for meat all the way down to maybe two, three hundred animals left. And these outfitters stepped in and said, wait a minute, you know, you've got a valuable commodity here. Over, you know, four, five, six years of, you know, hunting and conservation, those 300 animals are now 4,000. And you see these locals are protecting them with their life because the money that they're bringing in, they're generating from these tags, astronomical. And, you know, so when they have that, that money coming in, they don't have to go out and shoot them all. You know, they have money they can they can buy other food to survive on. And now, you know, an animal that was set to be soon, you know, I think is flourishing all because a hunter stepped in. As most people that have hunted a giraffe know, well, at least some are very challenging, but this particular hunt, I took the giraffe with a rifle. It was not challenging uh, as far as where I had to walk miles and miles and miles. I'm handicapped, so I couldn't do that. And I was lucky enough to be the first hunter on that concession for that safari season. So the animals were not afraid of people really at that point. They were more curious. We drove around for a long time and came across this bull and they knew he was there and he was an old, what is called a stink and he was dark black from covering himself in his waist and he literally stunk once they cleaned him and got him all skinned out you should have seen how busted up his skull was from fighting and calcified knots so brutal healing it up and they said these are the kind of bulls we want removed because they'll kill the younger ones with no thought about it they'll they'll get in there and beat them and stomp them to death it was this bull was well over 25 years old they estimated he was no longer a a viable breeding bull and his meat some went to market and some went to some of the local villages to try and keep their keep their cattle off the concession so that the native livestock the native animals could continue to flourish so i'm like you when i got over there i was like giraffe i've got no intentions to shoot a giraffe but it just kind of was one of those opportunities that presented itself and i said let's do this and i i enjoy it i weighed the skull just the skull alone from that animal weighs 24 pounds uh it's amazing the size yeah when you get up to that animal and and see it you know it's it just the tv and the pictures don't do it justice and that was the same thing with my lion to walk up and and see how enormous that cat was i had no desire to eat my giraffe uh i have no desire to try my lion but the locals were absolutely thrilled when i got they could not wait to get that meat back to you know to their house and especially in africa you know they're derived of protein that's just not you know on the table for them it's a poor all over africa without the hunters supplying not only you know funds for the animal but that meat it's absolutely key to the survival of all the animals in africa because you know as well as anybody that's been to africa if it was not for the hunters there wouldn't be an animal walking today in africa they would be completely wiped out you know just goats and cattle simply because the poaching is unbelievable the wire harnesses and i mean there's thousands and thousands of wire harnesses across africa people don't believe that but i like i said when i got to zimbabwe i drove for four and a half hours from the airport to the hunting concession and it was all bush just a, a road a cheaply paved road all the way and there was bush as far as you can see you know how many animals i saw in four and a half hours not a single animal until i got to the hunting concession because the animals in the concession are protected by anti-poaching patrol right that's paid for by hunters dollars there's no anti-poaching 
hunting patrol outside of the concession, everything is gone. And if there was no hunting, the same thing would happen to all those hunting conservancies. They would just be completely wiped out of all animals. So people don't realize that. If it wasn't for us, and then people always say to me, well, why, why don't you just donate the money and not go on the hunt? Why don't you? I hunt. That's what I do. That's what I paid for. I, I'm not in it for, you know, charity. Dollars that I spent for the hunt did go to that cause, to those anti-poaching patrols. You know, but these, these anti-hunters, they'll run their mouth all day long, but when it comes time to open the pocketbook, there's nowhere to be found. Oh, yeah. There was one famous hunter that uh, offered to take anybody that would pay the same fee as a hunter on a no-kill Cape Buffalo hunt. And they would go in, they'd photograph it, and he would treat them to just an amazing time, and they could take all the photographs of the Cape Buffalo, and he would make sure that that Cape Buffalo stayed protected. He had right. zero people take him up on that. They can twist, they can, you know, use, and st statistics are statistics. They can be made to show whatever you want them to show for the most part. But unless you're putting money in pockets and, and boots on the ground, you've really got to take your opinion with a big sense of skepticism because, and not yours, but just anybody in general, that if you have not been there, it's not like going to your local zoo. It's not the Lion right. King movie. Exactly. This money is vitally needed. So if you want to do something and you're an anti-hunter, give money. Otherwise, don't knock the people that are really doing and putting money out there. I don't think right. any hunter is stupid enough to know, think that 100% of the fees that they pay go to any local. Oh, they know, don't. The, the outfitters have to Absolutely. make Money. Not. The outfitters have to run their business. The outfitters have to pay right. for the anti-poaching patrols because the governments don't have the money to pay for those anti-poaching patrols. Those are all privately funded. The government doesn't get all of the, like, oh, the government gets all the money. No, the government gets the money for the permit that they sell, you know, which is just a small fee. You know, the, the rest of it, you're right. It goes into the anti-poaching. It goes into the, the camps are absolutely amazing. There are, you know, four or five star camps, you know, all through Africa, if you go with the right people. And that money comes from hunters. You know, the, the staff that's in employed there you know these people would have no job you know now they they're cooks there's, there's maids there's you know there's there's people cleaning up around the camp all day long there's skinners there's trackers you know that is all paid for by hunters dollars when i was in zimbabwe the place i was at had a the wild dogs of africa which are i saw about 15 of them in person the mo most beautiful animal there is it's those dollars that are going in to protect them you know it, they're going in there to, to protect the, the rhino that's the biggest you know, today for every rhino born, there's a rhino that posts. So they're not going to increase in population, you know, and without the hunter's dollars, that's an animal that could go extinct in my lifetime because of the, the value of that horn, which is absolutely useless and pointless. You know, the, the Chinese that think it's some kind of miracle thing, but all it is is keratin, like your, your fingernails. And they're paying about $50,000 a pound for that rhino horn. So got somebody that is in Africa that's extremely poor, and now you offer them $3,000 to go shoot a rhino, they're not going to think twice about it. Uh, it's a, probably a lifetime's worth of income. Without the hunter's dollars, those anti-poaching patrols would not be there. And without the anti-poaching patrol, there would be no rhino left. So it all trickles down and comes from the hunter. So whether you, you know, you agree with it or, or, or not, you know, that's just facts are facts and those are the facts. I think one of the things that absolutely floors me is I can understand, I don't agree with it, but I can understand when a hunter gets attacked by an anti-hunter, but then when you have the other hunters going after the hunters, it always makes me shake my head and that's a whole nother topic. I don't want to go into it, you know, off on a tangent, but right. you know, yeah. if it's a legally uh, sanctioned, it on my lion hunt. if it's a legally sanctioned animal, you know, 
I, I don't understand why people here in the United States think that they should be able to tell Zimbabwe or South Africa what animals are to hunt. They're not telling us not to hunt exactly. whitetail because they only see them in zoos. Exactly. And that, that, what you just said is the reason we as hunters will never win the fight because we can't stick together. Right. Yeah. And that's that whole hypocritical thing. Just if it's a legally sanctioned hunt, well, I might not have any interest in whatever that particular animal is. It's a legally sanctioned permitted hunt. Go for it. That's what you want right. to do. I got no problem. And I'll back you because you're doing it legally and you're paying the money that needs to be paid for whatever animal it is. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I'm, I'm athletic to a, a point. I've never played the sport of soccer. I've never had a desire to, but that doesn't mean that I would tell somebody that they're a horrible person or wish death upon them because they enjoy playing soccer. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion. I, I did it and I know we're not going to get into this. I'll just say this. I had so many people tell me, oh, I'm a hunter myself. Why would you shoot a lion? Because I'm a hunter and that's what I wanted to hunt and that's all there is to it. Right. People really need to understand, you know, in a lot of cases, elephants, the big cats, you know, and I, I shouldn't say for all Africans, but for a lot of sentiment you see is they'd like to see those animals gone. They are right. too much competition either with or for their livestock. So those are animals Correct. that are not necessarily valued unless there's a monetary amount put on their head. You might not like it, but if the animal has a monetary value placed upon it, it will be protect that monetary values removed. You've done the exact opposite opposite you wanted to in the conservation it's that you've just signed that animal's death warrant. And the perfect example is Botswana. When they shut down elephant hunting in Botswana, poaching went up 400%. They were actually, they, they got to the point where they were poisoning the water holes. So it killed the elephant. Therefore, everything that ate off of that elephant, because nothing gets, the only thing that gets taken is the ivory. Now, when you hunt an elephant, you could not, now this is the biggest land animal in the world. When somebody shoots an elephant, you can go back there two or three days later and never even know that an animal was shot there. However, when they poach one, it, you could go back there for months and months and months and see that thing just rotting, you know, and nothing good coming of it, except they, they cut out that ivory and took that ivory. So when those poachers poisoned those water holes and it killed the elephant, it also killed everything that ate on it. Exactly. So it, people just don't, they don't understand it. They're not there firsthand. They don't see it. If somebody tells them the story, oh, that's not true. But that is the truth. And that's usually the people that are being anti-hunters, they don't want to hear the truth. They, they don't care about the truth. They just want to, they have their agenda and that's all that matters they're walt disney conservationists they've spent too much time watching these disney movies and think that these animals just all live in harmony with each other so right. it's a battle that you know, hunters have to stick together to win right and you hit it on the head with walt disney walt disney came out with bambi and what do you hear most of oh are you going to kill bambi what hunter sets out what who leaves their house to go hunting and says i can't wait to shoot a baby deer we're not hunting bambi you know what animal died in bambi bambi's dad that's what hunters are after a mature old animal you know not everybody shoots one because people are out hunting for meat you know in whatever reason but that's it i mean nobody's going out shooting bambi we're hunting mature you know animals trophy animals you know meat animals whatever it may be you know yeah it, it, they've got this you know perception you know in their head from walt disney and it's just not correct it's as far from the truth as it is it could be it's brutal with what the animals will do to each other you know the land can only sustain so much so you know it's it's just a battle that stop and talk to people educate them when you can be a, a good steward of the sport of hunting and, and show it in a respectful light. Make sure that if you do nothing else to that person, when you walk away from them, make sure they're not against hunting. They don't have to like it. Just make sure they're not against it. That's, right. you yeah. know, 
that's one of the big battles right there alone. Right. People will always tell, oh, you know, they'll call me, oh, you're a murderer. Listen, I, I hunt, I, I'm not shooting every animal that walks past me. I'm not for a specific species or a, a, a specific, you know, aged animal. I'm the first person that sees a video of a, a leopard, you know, attacking a baby antelope, uh, impala. You know, I, I'm the first person to change it. I don't want to see that. I don't get comfort from that. That is the furthest thing from what I want to see. I, I have a heart, you know, just because I'm a hunter doesn't mean I don't, I'm not a compassionate person. You know, I love animals. I, when we were in Zimbabwe, all the antelope had just dropped their young. There were baby antelope everywhere. I mean, days old. And it was just, it was so nice to drive through the concession and see all these little baby antelope running around. I don't want to see a, a hyena walking around with holding a, a baby antelope. That's the furthest thing from the, from what I want. You know, not hunters aren't murderers. They're just hunters. We're just doing, you know, what people have done for thousands of years. It's going to be a long battle. I encourage anybody that's a hunter to, to stop criticizing other hunters. If somebody poaches, they're not a hunter. Criticize them. Point it out. Right. Point it out to the authorities. But if somebody's legally harvested an animal, whether it be a whitetail, whether it be a prairie dog or an elephant or a lion. If it's legally harvested under a sanctioned hunt where they've paid the fees, congratulate them. If you can't congratulate them, pass by. Don't say anything. Right. I think one of the biggest things that needs to happen, you know, everybody likes sitting down and, and sharing their hunting stories with other hunters. You know, talking about hunting, you know, is conservation. What every hunter needs to do is instead of sharing those stories with another hunter, I'm not saying share your hunting, tell them how you killed it. Share something about hunting with a non-hunter. The more people that are educated, the easier this fight will be. And that is, we were at one of the conventions and, uh, you know, I won't say his name, but he's a conservationist, got up for 20 minutes and told a room full of hunters how we need to use, use hunting for conservation. You, you know, you're preaching to the choir. Right. You know, go to an anti-hunting convention and stand up for 20 minutes and explain to them why hunting is necessary. I know why hunting is necessary. I don't need somebody to tell me. So I would encourage every hunter to, there's a non-hunter out there, stop for five minutes and explain why hunting is right and change change people's minds that way you know don't badmouth them because they're an anti-hunter make them you know like you said they don't have to hunt but make them understand hunting and why it's necessary all you have to do is look at white-tailed deer in the united states turkey in the united states almost all of those were brought back in one form or shape through hunting it's certainly the conservation groups as well as the hunting dollars and the state wildlife agencies that have helped to propel these species back to a point where i don't think somebody from 300 years ago in this country would even would realize how many deer this country are actually capable of holding with the same amount of people right. it would it would blow their minds they would not even be able to fathom it so if you uh, think that hunters is another yeah, bison. They all, in one form or shape, own it to the state wildlife agencies and the hunters' dollars and the conservation group who are doing the actual fighting to keep these species around. And if you protect bison, that creates habitat for mule deer, white-tailed deer, birds, mice. I mean, it, it covers all of the animals, big and small. It's really a, a good symbiotic relationship. What I want to tell the listeners is, first, Justin, thank you so much for being on. I, I really appreciate it. This was a great time talking. Congratulations on the achievement of the Super Slam. I look forward to seeing your pictures on Facebook when you get back from your Lord Derby Eland hunt. And for listeners, you can reach out and contact Justin on Facebook or Instagram. I'll have links to both of those in there. Please go out, 
read his book. If you have questions on the book, contact Justin. I'm sure he's, you know, would be happy to talk with folks to get any interest up in the, the hunting world. And then just let us know as you get closer to putting this museum and, and archery range together, it's going to be an amazing thing for people to go see. Uh, Jason, uh, thank you for reaching out and inviting me to do this. I enjoy spreading the word about hunting. I enjoy talking about my accomplishments. I love when people message me on social media and ask me about a particular hunt uh, that they want to go on. I'm not an expert, you know, by any means, but if I've been there and I've done it, I love helping people because there are, it's like everything, you know, there's good outfitters or bad outfitters. And I want to see everybody have a good hunting experience. You know, you can go on one hunt and have a bad time and put a bad taste in your mouth and it'll keep you from booking that second hunt but you know anybody that has any questions i love responding back i I like pointing people in the right direction and i you know i enjoy seeing their pictures when they get back from a hunt that was successful you know and if if there's anything i can do to help anybody you know i'm I'm just a a message away oh great well i appreciate the time we look forward again to following you in the future and having you on later on to to talk further adventures you've had and and done and can't thank you enough for your time it was really a lot of fun Uh, you're quite welcome jason thank you you take care you do the same thank you come early spring it's getting green fisher on the bed hear those turkeys gobble it's ringing in my head the winter rise bass boat here comes another year yeah we command the outdoors around here we command the outdoors yeah we Command the outdoors. Come summertime, we're feeling fine, fishing on the lake, flipping jigs in Carolina rigs. From early morning till real late, bonfires on the creek bank, kick back a couple beers. Yeah, we command the outdoors around here. Yeah, we command the outdoors. Yeah, we command the outdoors. Next year's does until you know winter's on the way. Brushing blinds and deer stands. Fever starts to creep Fill our freezers full of ducks Lots of tender deer Yeah, we command the outdoors around here Yeah, we command the outdoors Yeah, we command the outdoors So grab your guns and shells, boys Put on your camouflage Cause we command the outdoors around here We command the outdoors